If you will, open your Bibles uh, once again uh, to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read a, a portion of what we surveyed last week from Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up our reading in verse 14 and read through verse 19. Again, the book of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we'll begin our reading in just a moment in verse uh, 14. We saw last week how the human family has been devastated by sin's ruinous entrance into our world. However, despite the fall, human beings still uniquely bear the stamp of the image of God. And despite the curse upon family life, inclusive of male and female distinctions and parent-child distinctions, it is still essential to human flourishing. So, how do we, as Bible-believing Christians, live in a fallen world, yet still display the wisdom and glory of God within the biblically defined parameters of marriage and family? How do we reverse the curse and put the gospel in full display in our lives, in the lives of our families? So read with me, if you will. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your truth. You have revealed yourself uh, to us. You have revealed, us at, revealed yourself to us as our God, as our creator, as our redeemer. And God, I pray that we would hear from you through your word, that the spirit that inspired this sacred word would give me an ability to speak today, give these people the ability to hear, and God, that your spirit would so work uh, that uh, we would move uh, from the deep conviction of the realities of our own sin and sinfulness uh, to the great comfort and consolation that is ours as those who have been saved through the work of your Son Jesus Christ. May we take the truth of your word and may we utilize it in our lives and the lives of our family for uh, our, our, the sake of our own good, but for the sake of your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've emphasized and I've emphasized it repeatedly, and I'll continue to do so, uh, that you must master, you must come to grips with, you must understand, you, you must devote yourself to the study of these first three chapters of the Bible. Without these chapters, the rest of the Bible makes absolutely no sense. 
If, if you do not understand the implications of what happened in that garden with the rebellion of our first parents and the implications for us, you cannot appreciate the greatness of the glory of God revealed in the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, I would go so far as to say as we observe, as we participate, as we experience all of the realities of our world, that we can't even begin to make sense of the insanity of the current activities and attitudes of our world apart from the explanation that is given to us in Genesis 1 through 3. And so as we look at these texts, it has implications for us as individuals. It has implications for us as the church of the living God. It has implications for us who would live uh, biblically within the confines of the family. And it has implications for us as we live and experience all the realities of uh, the fallen world. And so it is from Genesis 3 we begin to look forward, and we saw these hints last week, but we look forward to the realities of the redemption that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ and the ultimate consummation when we will be delivered from the curse ultimately and finally with all of its implications and all of its devastating impact upon our life. That is, we do live with sober reality but consummate hope. And so you remember last week we saw this encounter uh, between the crafty serpent and uh, the woman and that he uh, deceived her and through that deception uh, she uh, brought in uh, to uh, her husband uh, the fruit that they, they both knew better than to eat and they ate and the entirety of the human race, the entirety of the created order was plunged into the abyss of sin. The serpent deceived Eve. Adam willfully rebelled against God. There was this inversion of family order with this rebellion against God and the perversion of God's Word. And we see, again, the uh, Satan, the serpent, using the subtle strategy of the manipulation and the twisting and, again, the perverting of the Word of God to lead them uh, into uh, temptation. And so, at the end of the day, the first couple disbelieved God and believed the lie of the serpent. Still today, even as believers, we sin when we disbelieve God and we believe the promise of sin. That is what leads us into sin. Why else would we sin? We believe, maybe at the lowest level we're going to get by with it, and at a higher level, that there's a greater benefit, there's greater pleasure to be found in rebellion against God. And, and, and just let's, just let's just stop there for just a minute. That we believe the pleasures of rebelling against Almighty God, who spoke the entirety of the universe into existence, that the one who is powerful enough to do anything and everything, who could crush us, with less than the breath, breath of his mouth. And we go, yeah, I think it's a good idea. I'll just rebel against him. You know, I know what the Bible says, but, right? Don't look at me spiritual. Don't look at me spiritual. We all do it. Well, I know, I know, but, and so, that continues. And so, since the rebellion, humanity, man, has been spiritually dead, morally corrupt, subject to mortality, estranged from God, in conflict with himself, in conflict with nature, in conflict with one another, because our first parents were expelled from our perfectly pristine home, we are restless wanderers seeking the certainty, safety, security, and satisfaction we forsook by our transgression, that, that we perpetuate by our ongoing transgression. 
we desperately ache, even in our fallen state, for the one whom we lost. But we seek to satisfy that ache through our endless and fruitless, carnal, self-centered, self-satisfying pursuits. So let's look once again at this business of the divine curse communicated to both to, or to the serpent, to the woman, and to Adam, uh, the implications that come to us because of their rebellion. Again, verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, speaking to the serpent, God said that that serpent would be cursed above all creatures and that this, this serpent would be humbled. He would be humiliated. He would lick of the dust of the earth all of his days and that he shall be subject. He shall be the defeated enemy of the ultimate uh, seed of the woman. There shall be conflict, and that conflict is real, and we're involved in that conflict on a daily basis. We've been involved in that conflict since that day. It is devastating. It is deadly. But we need to understand that the serpent is indeed a defeated enemy. Think of it this way. If you go to the Birmingham Zoo, and you go to the, uh, the lion exhibit. You can hear that lion roar, and it can frighten even an adult because you know that that lion can devastate you. But as long as you remain behind the barriers, as long as that lion is encased in his uh, cage, the lion really can't do you harm. He can strike fear, but he's limited. That's what he can do, particularly as it pertains to the believer. We're like the stories we see occasionally pop up. Well, this individual, this child, this whatever, crossed the barriers, climbed over the fence, climbed under the hedgerow, whatever, and got in the cage with a wild animal. And once they were within their, that realm, they were devastated. And so we need to remember that Satan is a lion. He is roaring. He seeks to devour. It is true. But he is constrained by the power of one who is infinitely greater. And that is our Lord God. That is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the serpent is under a curse. The, the woman is under the curse, and uh, most notably this business of the pain in childbearing coupled with ongoing domestic conflict. And we could uh, tease that out, and we did a bit last time. But from both participants, man and woman, they are guilty of being domineering and seeking to dominate. Uh, they're, they're, they're both guilty of those sins and others as it pertains to the ordained, to the defined, to the designated uh, roles uh, for the man and the woman uh, in marriage. Uh, the, the, either one can neglect their re responsibilities. Either one can overflow the boundaries of their responsibilities and do great harm uh, to that relationship. And so there's this ongoing conflict uh, within uh, the home that is a part of the curse. And then to Adam, the cursed ground, the reality of how difficult it is uh, to live in a fallen world with, a, with, a, with nature that is hostile uh, to the livelihood, to the survival of the man, and uh, the frustrating uh, nature of the labor that he is going to be uh, forced uh, to uh, to to engage in. Notice verse 19. Now, I don't know how many of you experience this. By the sweat of your face. Now, I don't know how much, how many of y'all have done a lot of outdoor manual labor. As, as you've heard me talk about, uh, I grew up with a father who was a building contractor. I grew up driving nails and doing all kinds of stuff like that. One of the most miserable things that I experienced in the course of those labors, 
was your, your, you know, your head gets soaking wet with sweat, your face gets soaking wet with sweat, and that salty sweat gets in your eyes, and, and then maybe you're using a power saw, and that sawdust gets in your eyes, and you rub it, and it gets rawer and rawer, and it is, the, the sweat of your face is a miserable experience. And now, because I wear glasses, one of the most miserable experiences in the world is sweating and trying to see through your stupid glasses. And, and again, mortality, folks. Mortality right here. Tim Evans, along with everybody else. Where'd y'all go? Did, they, did everybody leave? I didn't hear you. But I just, that is such a graphic description. The misery of the sweat pouring off of our face. And I don't think it's by accident that we get this description of the, in the gospel of the sweat drops of blood pouring from the face of the Lord Jesus in his night of agony, agony experience because of us and for us, for us. And so we, we see this business of frustrating labor, and ultimately they're expelled uh, from the garden, and I've mentioned this already. They lost, and we lost, this great reality of fellowship uh, with God, the safety, security, uh, the seren uh, serenity, the satisfaction, and even the sanity of life with God. I mean, we look at our world, I mean, I mean as I look on the world today, I'm, I'm just, have you, have you lost your ever-loving mind? Sanity. Just, just the normal connections between my existence and reality. We're increasingly losing them. And so having lost that, what we know now is scarcity, is the challenge of life outside of the garden. And then, of course, in verse 19, death, mortality. Now, what did God tell them? Now, everything is yours. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, except this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day that you eat of it, and the Hebrew is very emphatic, it is without a doubt, it is absolutely certain, that it is 100% true, you will die. And they did. Because mortality entered into, for lack of a better term, entered into their DNA. But most importantly, they were severed from the life-giving relationship with Almighty God. They were rendered spiritually dead. And every person born since that day is conceived even in the state of spiritual death. Occasionally we mention, maybe not even frequently enough, because of the reality of spiritual death, you must be born again. We come back to that over, uh, that's a fun, that flows out. If you don't get the reality of spiritual death, you do not get the necessity of the new birth. You can't see the kingdom of God, you don't get it. You embrace the kingdom of the world and all of its lies, all of its philosophy, its entire agenda and goals. You just can't fathom it because you can't see the glory of the kingdom of Christ until you're born again. That's why. You must. You must. It is an absolute essential that you be born again. And so, because of this, the human condition, post-fall, physical mortality, our minds are darkened. We give in to our vain imagination. Our eyes are blinded to God's glory. Our wills are obstinate. Our affections are perverse. We're spiritually dead enemies of God. Other than that, we're great. Other than that, we're really great. We're doing fine. Doing fine. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's look a little further at the implications to the curse. I mentioned already, please be sure we understand this. The serpent 
is a defeated enemy. And we need to be sure we live like that is true. And that, as already mentioned this morning, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against God's church. It, it will be established. It will uh, survive. We, and so, and it will thrive, I, I believe. But again, he is the genius behind this fallen world. He is the one who blinds the eyes of the unbelieving world. He afflicts the believer. He is the insider of false teaching. And he is the roaring lion. And he is always seeking to devour. In a sense, he's there to afflict the believer and to destroy the unbeliever. Then this whole business of the challenge in childbearing, and that extends far beyond just those hours of labor. And ladies, I, I can't imagine, I, I, I won't even pretend to be able to speak to that issue, okay? I won't, you know, show myself a fool to go there that much. But it's, but it's, it's a challenge. But here's the thing. The pain of childbearing the ripple effects involve the husband, the wife, the, all of the things we, from, from abortion flows out of that, child abuse flows out of that. All of these things are part of this curse upon humanity all the way through to the rebellion of those little darling image bearers that God graciously gives to us. But indeed, they are rebellious image bearers. And all the parents said, okay. And then there's the conflict within this one flesh covenant. Sometimes the conflict is related to children. You don't raise your hand, okay? And don't look at me spiritual like it ain't never happened either, okay? Ever been a disagreement over how to handle an issue with a child? Nah, I, I'm, I'm not talking to the right group. I, I, I know that there's never that that happens there. And, and let me, I, now none, I know y'all's children are far too spiritual for this. But I have seen children that will manipulate their parents. Or at least I've heard about it. Maybe, I may, may not have seen it firsthand, but I have heard that their children that will they will play their parents like Joe plays a guitar. I mean, just, they got go up and down the neck and everything, you know. Yeah. Then there's conflict related to provision. I had a good friend that used to do uh, Tuesday night visitation with me. You should go knock on doors and bother people and, you know, be obnoxious and tell them, God loves you and you're going to hell. Uh, well, it's not exactly like that, but you, you get the gist of it. But he was a very astute man. And he, he used to laugh that, that he had two daughters and their first words were, I won't. Now, I'm not sure if he meant W-A-N-T or if he meant W-O-N apostrophe T. Uh, because I guess it sounds the same, so they mean both, right? When they say, I won't. Uh, but, but do we ever get over that? And, 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 and when we think about provision, somebody tends to always want more. But they want you to come home from work early. They don't like it when you work late. And it creates all kinds of conflict in the home. And, and again, husbands and wives, they feel the, 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 the real weight of this, don't, don't, don't you? Uh, of, of, again, the difficulty of provision and the necessity of provision and the responsibility of provision. But yet, what am I doing here still on the job at 9 and 10 and 11 o'clock at night when I need to be home ministering to my family? So there's conflict there and conflict related to authority both the neglect of exercising appropriate authority and then rebelling against the appropriate exercise of the authority, abusing that authority. 
And I've, listen, I've told you this before. I've said it every time I've done this. I've probably seen more men being jerks in the name of being the leaders of their home than I've seen women acting out otherwise. Now, I hadn't kept count. I haven't got a computer in which I register it. But again, both are subject to various types of rebellion as related to God's ordained and established order for the home. And even there, there's conflict, or at least anxiety, but even conflict related to the realities of mortality, of, of caring for extended family members and maybe what uh, your plans are related to those things. All of those things are implications that we must deal with. And, and, and at some level, you deal with them daily. At least one part of it you deal with daily. Maybe multiple aspects of the implications of the fall. So let's think then about this business of redemption after the curse or redemption from the curse. And as it applies in the individual life, as it applies to the corporate church, as it applies to the partners, to the participants of, of marriage, it really begins with genuine conversion. Now, let me, let me tell you this. Biblical principles for marriage and for life can work to some extent when applied and practiced even by the non-believer at, at some level. Now, let me, let me just, just from, from life, you start a business. Is it better to love your neighbor by giving them an honest day's work or an honest service or an honest product for a fair price? Or is it better to cheat them? Is it better to, if you're in, say, a service business, we'll be there tomorrow at 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock rolls around and you're sitting there, where's the cable guy? Where's the cable guy? Where's the cable guy? He said he's going to be here at 10 o'clock. You sit there till 2 o'clock and you finally call the people at the cable office and, you know, you get 17, punch this button, punch this button, punch this button. And then you get to say, hello, very nice to meet you, you. You know, or something along that line, and, and you know, you know the whole drill. But you know, the Bible teaches us that lying is a sin. And so, as a biblical principle, it is the best thing for your well being and for everybody else is to what? Not lie. That's, that's a simple application of, of, a, of a biblical principle that flows directly out of God's law. Or, uh, how about? You know, no stealing. Uh, well, you know, I'm going to go in and do a job in somebody's house. Oh, I saw a diamond ring there. Just nobody. Yeah, that kind of stuff gets around. Of course, if you get caught. And, you know, everybody's familiar with businesses in which they've had employees steal, you know, materials, money, you, you name. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? There, there's some sense where the unbelieving world can flourish or have a better life, I guess you want to say it that way, by looking at Scripture and saying, you know what, these, these, are, these are really wise, they're, they're intelligent uh, principles. And same thing in marriage. It's, it's, guys, I'm going to tell you a little secret. Don't lie to your wife. Now, I'm not going to charge y'all for that one, okay? I, I, that was free. But, 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 when, but when you're tempted... When you're tempted to make that excuse, don't look at me because I know. When you're tempted, Brother Tim told me not to lie. You know, that's probably best, best just to be straightforward and honest. Okay. So, but you bring those principles into to, to married life and unbelievers can benefit from that. But let's be sure and let's be clear. Only... Believers can live with the genuine confidence and conviction of the transcendent realities, benefits, and priorities of a biblical worldview and a gospel-informed and transformed life. And this is, again, the dynamic of being filled with the Spirit. We're going to come back. I, I, I know y'all can't wait for me to, to deal with Ephesians 5. There's a couple of words in there I know everybody loves to hear. We're going to talk about them some next week, okay? 
And everybody be here now. I know where every one of you sitting, okay? So I'll be looking to be sure you're here. So I've told you ahead of time. But you know, all of that, the driving force through that whole section of Ephesians 5 is what? Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And that, it's kind of like, Going back to my analogy of working outside on a hot day. If you stay out there long enough and you work hard enough, it's really going to take more than just a sip of water before you go out the door. You're going to have to drink constantly. You're, you're going, I mean, sometimes when I mow the yard, I put one of those plastic water bottles in my back pocket. And I'm drinking the whole, the whole time I'm out there. And, and so... They're, they're simply in, in the filling of the Spirit. Yes, it is a work of God. Yes, it is of the grace of God. Yes, it flows directly from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ as He has sent the Spirit for the purpose of filling, of empowering us. But they're daily disciplines. There, there, there is a, and some, we've pointed this out many times, that, that maybe a paradox between the, the grace of God and, and the grit and the grind of the Christian life. I know none of y'all wanted to just stay in bed this morning. I know everybody was just, oh, can't wait. Oh, I'm so excited. But that's just an example, just a small one, of the grit and the grind. That this is where you need to be. And, 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 and I know nobody gets up in the morning and says, well, I'm not going to read my Bible this morning. There's just too many things. You know, I'm just not going to pray today. But there's something you have to say, I've got to do this. I, I, I've got to discipline myself to, to do these, these things. And I've, I've got to, I don't necessarily feel like it, but I'm going to grind it out. I'm going to exercise uh, the discipline for the sake of the power that flows from the filling of, of the Spirit. And, and, and then the whole business of being centered on the Word of God, or, or Word-centeredness. Uh, now, th that's, that's a cause and effect. I'm committed to the Word, and as I go to the Word, the Spirit of God works in me, and the Spirit of God fills me. And as I'm filled with the Spirit of God, guess what? Guess where I'm driven? To the Word. To the Word. It goes back and forth and back and forth. And, and so it, it causes us to, to recognize the genius of, of, of God's design for humanity, for the husband and wife, for the fam family uh, relationship. All of these things, it, uh, the, the, the Word of God in, informs us and forms us towards obedience. Now, how many times have you heard me make, make the uh, reference of, of the use and the distinctives of the believer utilizing both the law and the gospel? This is a very Martin Luther principle, okay? But I, I think it's genius. I think it's genius that, that we utilize these things, that this law that reveals the character and the will of God that identifies and exposes our sin, so that we may be convicted and prompted towards repentance. Ellen comes home nearly every day and somewhat overwhelmed many times. And she will tell me we have one, two, three, four people that came through the GI lab today and they had Little to no idea that they've got cancer. They, 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 they were devastatingly sick, but they did not know it. And as long as they did not know it, they did not address it to seek a cure while it was doing the damage to their life. We visited a family member last Sunday afternoon. He was told two months ago, you got stage four cancer, bones, lymph nodes, the whole nine yards. And he said, well, I, you know, I had some problems. I just couldn't figure it out. But the thing, sin is far worse than a tumor. 
And I, and I hate tumors, and I hate cancer, and I've lost a parent to cancer, and probably everybody here has lost a loved one to something as devastating as, as cancer. But the only way that there's any hope for addressing the realities of cancer is to identify it and to excise it, whether medically or surgically. And the same thing applies to our sin, and it is the law that is that surgical strike against our sin so that we may know it and get it out of our life before it destroys us. And those that we love. And so we use the gospel as well. That is, the gospel reveals the character of God. It, it reveals the will of God that we should know Him as our Savior. It promises us that the obligations that God's demands have been met in His Son, Jesus Christ. It promises that our transgressions have been forgiven. It promises that our guilt in Adam and of our own performance has been removed. And it pronounces us as righteous in Christ. And we want to use these, both the law and the gospel appropriately. I got a few chuckles last week. I think everybody that chuckled has repented from what I've gathered. But I talked a little bit about legalism. And the law used improperly can make us proud because there's a way I can kind of apply the law to my life and I can look at you and say, oh, y'all guilty, but I'm not. Or, or shouldn't I be proud? I'm, I'm far more spiritual than you. And we can become very pompous, but the law used rightly does what? It drives us to the gospel. It drives us to the, the one who died for us and the one who lives to intercede. But we can also kind of use the, the gospel nominally. I'm righteous in Christ. My sins have been forgiven. And I don't need to worry about how I live. It's, it's all good because of Jesus. And I can say, I can do, I can act any way that I choose to. I think that's an improper use of the gospel. If that is your attitude about your obedience to Christ, I would challenge you, and I can't, ju I can't judge any heart. I don't, I don't know the heart of anybody here, absolutely. But if you can say, ah, if I obey, it's okay. If I don't obey, it's okay. I would challenge you to, to, to examine yourself to see if you're genuinely converted. That's, I, I mean, I know that's rough. I'm not saying, I can't say one way or the other. But a flippant attitude related to your own holiness, you're related to your obedience to Christ, is a danger sign spiritually. And so, redemption after the curse, conversion and filling of the Spirit and a word-centeredness. Now, I am convinced that both the gospel and marriage are still worth it. And you say, well, what are you talking about, Tim? We're going to be increasingly persecuted, it seems like. seems like that's where we're going for the truth of the gospel, for our stand for the truth, for biblical truth. It's worth it. And marriage itself is worth it. We, we, the gospel is still on display in marriage despite the curse. Now, I've told you many times, I, I ran across a book, I don't know how long ago, 10 or 15 years ago, This Momentary Marriage by John Piper. And he, he highlighted, I guess, what I already knew, but he, but he codified it for me, that, that marriage is this great and glorious and continuous and personal and powerful portrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I can say from the depths of my heart with the greatest of sincerity, well, I'm not happy being married. I don't care. Care less. What's that got to do with being married? What's your happiness got to do when compared to the glory of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and portrayed in this thing we call marriage? Do you see the contrast? Your happiness? Are you kidding me? You want to talk to me about your happiness? You're kidding we're talking about the glory of God. We're talking about the reality of the gospel. We're talking about the privilege that you have of portraying these things to the world, to the church, to your family. So, marriage is still a good idea, practical level. Just practical. It's still worth pursuing, practicing, 
and preserving is still worth persevering in. Just some practical thoughts here. Women who bear children out of wedlock are vastly more likely to live in poverty. That's a statistical fact. If you choose to not be, be married and have children, you will suffer for that. Children who are raised by single moms are typically at such a disadvantage. They're frustrated in education and in vocation. They're more, li more likely to struggle with emotional, psychological, and spiritual maladies. They're more likely to be involved in crime and substance abuse. Ask any educator. Go ask them if that's true. Divorced women are far more likely to live in economically disadvantaged situations. Divorce is likely to ruin a family's finances. I got a little cliche about lawyers. Well, there's a lot of cliches, but I can't use all of them in the pulpit, you know, about lawyers. But the only people that win in lawsuits are what? Or who? Lawyers. Guaranteed they're going to win. I promise you they win. And a divorce, a divorce is what? It's a lawsuit. It's a lawsuit. There's an old adage, if you want to be a millionaire, don't get divorced. Husbands who leave behind, that is, they abandon their wives and families through divorce, will communicate rejection to them both, to the family and the wife, and to the church, and to the world. If the primary purpose of the husband and wife relationship is to display the gospel, and it is, that's the primary purpose, then for the husband to abandon the wife is to communicate a falsehood that Christ could forsake his bride, his blood Brought, bought bride. The children of divorced parents are far more likely to suffer economically, spiritually, and psychologically. Husbands who leave open, husbands who leave open the door to someone else to become the protector and the provider for their families, and they run the risk of a perverse pretender living in close association with their children. I often warn young people regarding being deceived by those you da they date. That is, it isn't far-fetched to think that a boy or a girl or a man or a woman would present, pretend, and represent themselves to be a believer in order to get a date and more. When in fact, they are not indeed believers. Husband or wife, your abandonment provides opportunity for a charlatan, for a chameleon to invade your home and lay siege to your children. I never will forget when Rick Burgess came and spoke about 15, 18 years ago. Stated very clearly, he said it many times on the radio, because of my sin, another man put my children to bed at night. Wow. 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 So, these are real and they're practical and they're crucial issues pertaining to marriage, but they're bigger issues. Those are important but they're bigger issues. The bigger issue is the ultimate issue that marriage is a real time and space, flesh and blood portrayal of Christ and his gospel. Marriage is the drama that displays the glorious love for, of Christ for his beloved bride, and that display is reenacted every day in married life. To be sure, Christ is either exalted or defamed in our marriage. Marriage was revealed first to point to the gospel while Marriage illustrates the gospel. The gospel informs and defines marriage. The gospel and marriage both reflect upon each other. And so that is the reason that makes marriage ultimately that which should be protected, practiced, preserved, and persevered in. Now let's see if we can see this. Marriage as the portrayal of Christ and his love for his bride, the church. In Genesis 2.24, we find the seeking husband. The husband leaves his home to leave and cleave to the wife. We see Christ leaves the privileges of heaven to seek his bride. Jesus said what? Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So, the husband portrays the seeking Savior. We see marriage portrayed in the permanence of the covenant in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. 
Adam proclaims that the woman is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is the language that would later describe the unbreakable nature of covenants. And we see God say time and time again, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so to break that covenant is to portray God as a covenant breaker. The intimacy of the one flesh relationship portrays Christ and his identity, his union with the flesh. The, the physical union of the one flesh relationship between the man and the woman is a portrayal, is a, a drama that is designed to point to the mystical, unbreakable, permanent, eternal, beautiful union of Christ with his church. Isn't some of Paul's favorite language to be in Christ? 1 Corinthians 6.15 do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself is Savior. Ephesians 5.25-29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. In the one flesh relationship, we portray the gospel. The shepherd husband. Adam was described and defined to be the worker and the keeper of the garden. The husband who is stewards that which God has entrusted to him. He sows, he tends, he cultivates, he nurtures that which was entrusted to him. And so the husband is to demonstrate Christ-like leadership. Jesus spoke of leadership, not necessarily of the home, but of leadership in general. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but whoever be great among you must be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the servant, sacrificial head of the family. The shepherd husband serves the sheep. That is his family. His work is for their well-being. He is the protector. He is the provider of the sheep. He is the representative of the one that says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for sheep. The good shepherd does not say, I'm not happy. I don't like laying my life down for my sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep protects and provides and ultimately gives his life for them. Genesis 2.25, they were naked and unashamed, total acceptance of the bride by Christ. Now, the bride of Christ is not accepted because of her purity or perfection. She is accepted because she is covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his love, he has covered the multitude of her sins. And so the husband portrays the, the Lord Jesus Christ who ultimately covers our sin because the bride is robed in the garments of the per perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, the sacrificial servant head, it doesn't mean that he suffers or tolerates or neglects to identify sin, therefore empower it, but responds formatively, correctively, and graciously as one who leads by serving. He is the one who sacrificed the great privileges of heaven for the sake of his bride. And so we see the sacrificial servant head. Christ cleanses his bride as the husband is charged with washing the bride with the water of the word. And this came to me last week, and I want y'all to think and listen closely. I think it's a powerful picture of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never seen, this is, this is kind of a, it, it, obviously it's barred in some sense, but I've never seen this exactly like how I'm going to say it. So you may run me out of town on a rail, but I think there's something to this. Christ and Adam as the source. Genesis 2.21. Adam, the source of the life of the wife, and Christ, the source of redemption. God, in a display of wisdom and love, gently blesses Adam by creating for him and from him his companion and helper. Adam feels no pain in the procedure, and from the taking of the rib from his side, God forms and gives to him his bride. Adam is passive. He's asleep as this happened. This stands 
in contrast, but yet analogous and foreshadowing continuity with the work of the second Adam. That is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, while fully awake and in agony upon the cross, a cruel soldier of the pagan Roman Empire, as a final insult to the Lord, viciously plunges into his side a spear, and from that wound in his side flowed blood and water. While Adam was asleep, God lovingly and carefully excises the rib and then graciously heals Adam's side. The second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, willfully willfully and willingly, while entirely awake, submits to the Father's plan not to create the pride, but to redeem the bride. From the side of Adam, the bride is created, and from the side of Christ, the bride is saved. The bride is cleansed from all defilement by the blood and the water of the Savior's side. The blood of the second Adam, highlighting the reality that the first Adam failed to save and sanctify and secure the safety of his bride. The second Adam succeeded in saving and sanctifying and securing the safety of his bride by becoming the sacrificial substitute. The blood from his side is the blood through which the multitude of our sins are covered. The water which poured from the side of the husband who didn't blame his wife, who didn't stand by silently while she was seduced by a serpent, but instead he suffered in her place for her sins and now lives to intercede, to protect and provide. The water therefore can represent both the Word and the Spirit in Scripture. So the second Adam, the sacrificial husband, is the subject of the Word and the sender of the Spirit for the sake of the salvation of the bride. The water symbolizes the imperishable seed of the new birth that, that is the Word of God and the inexhaustible living water of the Spirit sent forth from the Father and the Son. The punctured side of the sacrificial servant husband pours forth blood and water, that which God uses instrumentally and effectively in saving the Son's bride. I don't know if Adam still bears the scar of God's divine surgery, but we do know that our Lord, the perfect husband, bears the scars in his sides and in his hands, scars that are eternal reminders of the wounds through which the bride is secured. A symbol of the promise that the bride is safe and secure. So, so, therefore, no matter the difficulty, marriage is worth it. It's worth it not only because it's a good idea, and it is. It works. It's, a, it's beneficial. It is worth it because it is the living full-color drama that God has chosen to display the glorious, sacrificial love and saving sacrifice of His Son for the sake of His bride, the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for your truth, for the picture that you've given us in marriage, for the hope that we can, that, that we live really in the experience of the reversal of the curse. God, may we know it in its fullest extent. May we mitigate the realities of our own sinfulness in our home. May we be faithful in imitating and seeking to follow after the one who indeed is the ultimate and the faithful husband. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.